It's part of the human predicament, I think, that we often feel alone. As a nation, we've invested in scanning the skies even for evidence of intelligent life. We want to know, are we alone in the universe? The philosophers of atheistic science aren't very encouraging. They tell us things like, the universe is simply indifferent to our suffering. Or, our planet is a lonely speck in the great enveloping cosmic dark. I think it may even be the fear we each carry from our infancy. The baby who wakes up in the dark doesn't know until she learns from repeated experience that mom or dad are going to show up when she calls. Until then, she wonders, am I alone? And I think even as adults, we wonder, will I find someone to be close to? Being alone is wondering if there's anyone who is really on your side. And in the story tonight, I think Jacob finds himself really in a place where he's completely alone. Look at this, he's sleeping outside. He's got no protection from the elements. Family and friends are far away. He's headed to a place he's never been with no guarantee he'll ever get there or secure his objective. And then something totally unexpected happens. But let's just take a minute to remember how he got himself here in the first place. Looking back, what we heard last week, he has conspired with his mother to deceive his father and rob his brother of his birthright. How's that for family harmony? And what's more, their unlikely plan, and we got to see kind of just how strange it was, their unlikely plan has actually succeeded, and Jacob has formally been given the blessing of the heir, the designated son. But apparently they failed to anticipate Esau's response. His initial anguish has turned to bloodthirsty rage. Jacob has always been a problem for him. First he tricks him out of his birthright with that business with the stew. Now he's stolen his blessing. But Esau sees a pretty simple solution. Once dad dies, eliminate Jacob. And from what we know about Jacob and Esau, one is the hunter, the kind of wild man, right? And one kind of likes to hang around at home. I think we know in Esau v. Jacob who would be most likely to succeed. So Jacob's in a pickle. Rebecca's still on top of things, hatches another plan. Let's get Jacob out of here. And Still ever the capable manager, she's not about to have her favorite son packed off in the middle of the night like a dog with his tail between his uh, legs. So she covers her tracks with this whole deception and she goes to Isaac and she makes it all about Esau's wives. Man, they are making life difficult for us. She urges Isaac to send Jacob, who's now the designated heir, to her family in Haran so he can find a suitable wife. And this is her reason, um, because Esau's wives have been such a pain. So let's pick up the story here, Genesis 28. It's on page 19 if you're looking in your pew Bible. So Isaac called for Jacob and blessed him. Then he commanded him, do not marry a Canaanite woman. Go at once to Padan Aram, to the house of your mother's father, Bethul. Take a wife for yourself there from among the daughters of Laban, your mother's brother. May God Almighty bless you and make you fruitful Increase your numbers until you become a community of peoples. May he give you and your descendants the blessing given to Abraham so that you may take possession of the land where you now reside as a foreigner, the land God gave to Abraham. Then Isaac sent Jacob on his way, and he went to Padan Aram to Laban, son of Bethuel the Aramean, the brother of Rebekah, who was the mother of Jacob and Esau. Now Esau learned that Isaac had blessed Jacob and had sent him to Padan Aram to take a wife from there, and that when he blessed him, he commanded him, do not marry a Canaanite woman, and that Jacob had obeyed his father and mother and had gone to Padan Aram. Esau then realized how displeasing the Canaanite women were to his father Isaac. 
So he went to Ishmael and married Mahalath, the sister of Nahaboth, and the daughter of Ishmael, son of Abraham, in addition to the wives he already had. Well, let's take this piece. So intertwined now with the story of these competing brothers has been a theme that's just key to the whole story of how God is dealing with Abraham and his family, and that is passing on the blessing. And in today's text here, this comes to the forefront. It's actually a critical moment in this whole narrative. We've seen that Jacob has been chosen as the heir, but neither brother has an acceptable wife. No wife means no children, and no children is no one to whom to pass on the promise. And Chris pointed out to us that this is actually a lot of Isaac's doing. He's failed in his responsibility as a father to select an acceptable wife for either of his sons. If we look back even further, we can see what he should have done. For Abraham, this was a matter of paramount importance before he died. He tells his servant, and he says, You swear to me you shall not take a wife for my sons from the daughters of the Canaanites among whom I live. Now we might be sitting and wondering, What's the big deal? Say it. What's the big deal? Right? Who cares who they marry? Uh, I think it's hard for us as Western people maybe to get our minds around the importance of this. And I really just think it is something that's rooted historically in that culture. And so God is working in the ways that I think they would expect to see. The issue is one of preserving this unique promise of God to Abraham, and it's a threefold promise. We've seen it, to have many descendants, to possess the land, and to be a blessing to all the earth. And ancient people really actually preferred to marry within the family, odd as it seems to us. It keeps the bloodline pure, it keeps property within the family fold, it keeps it easy to transmit your culture. It's just kind of what they often expected. This one particular family possesses just a plot of land in the middle of the promised land. Just a bulkhead, a burial plot. Right? They're surrounded by foreign tribes, and there is a great risk that if they just marry into the surrounding communities, their distinctive understanding of God and their ability to be a channel of that blessing will be lost. And that's always that danger, to just assimilate a little too much into the culture, I think, that surrounds us. So this is a critical moment of transition. I imagined it like... It's not quite Christmas yet, but I'm getting anxious for Advent and Christmas. So I'm thinking of the family passing down those boxes of Christmas ornaments from the attic. That's how we did it at my house. And one person is standing rather high and kind of perilously on the ladder, trying to get a grip on that box. And it holds family treasures. Maybe they're not very valuable to anybody else, but it's their memories. It's their heritage. It's actually part of how they know who they are, their identity as a family. And you're reaching down and you want to make sure that that young person below has a good handle on that box before you let go. Maybe mom's studying the ladder, making sure the whole operation doesn't come to a crashing halt. I think it's kind of like that. The reaching, that moment of receiving, it's an important time. The transmission could go wrong, and Esau sort of serves here as an unfortunate example to show us how. Remember when Esau, we've traced this theme throughout a couple texts now, it's in small pieces, so maybe you hadn't put them together yet, but when Esau turned 40, the same age at which Isaac had married Rebecca, he goes and gets married. And apparently with no guidance from his father, he does exactly what Abraham said not to do and marries the Canaanite women, and they immediately bring grief to Isaac and Rebecca. So this is another clue for us. Esau is not really wanting to be the son of the promise. 
Besides despising his birthright by selling it for a bowl of stew, he just has little interest in the family's heritage. He sort of disqualified himself. Of course, it's not that Jacob is so much better. In fact, I think about the only thing that can be said for Jacob is that he wants it. Right? He, he's always grasping for that promise. Often you hear people say when we're trying something and, oh, it's okay if we fall because we're just taking baby steps. Heard that, that metaphor, right? I've watched my babies learn to walk, and the one thing I know about them is, yes, they're, they're baby steps and they're toddling, but, man, do they want it. There is something in them driving them to become what they're meant to be. And I, I only wish, I think, that I went after God that powerfully. That may be all we have to say for Jacob. He's want, he wants it. So now in this text, Jacob receives another blessing. And finally, Isaac is looking like a father. He calls and he blesses. He commands. These are the things a father ought to be doing. And before he talked, when he blessed Jacob, in that, that blessing Jacob stole, it was mostly about sort of material things, um, the the abundance of grain and wine, and it was about your brothers will serve you. But now it's specifically the blessing that was given to Abraham, um, the land and the descendants. Is it significant that he forgets blessing the world? I'm not sure. And in verse 5, we're again reminded of Esau. This is his, his first little move of any interest in the family's heritage. Wow, uh, my parents don't like the Canaanite wives. Uh, Jacob is getting a wife from our family. Maybe I'll fix this. So he marries a daughter of Ishmael. It's kind of tragic because it's just too little, too late. As we know from before, Ishmael's line is not destined to be the bearer of the promise. This resides with Isaac. So Esau comes to kind of a dead end. And it's on that note we leave this messed up family for a while. I really do see a tragedy in it. There's the story of the two brothers locked in competition since before birth somehow convinced that there is not enough blessing to go around. So think for a moment. Who passed on the promises of faith to you? It's quite likely one or more people played an important role in showing God to you. Madeline Lingle says, uh, a Christian is one who knows one. But odds are they probably did it imperfectly. Where have you had to unlearn something? Or where were there gaps left? Maybe you learned a lot about God, but you still need him to show up. So this brings us to the second part of our encounter. This is where Jacob stands. It's the most unlikely place. He's received a blessing that seems as far as possible from being fulfilled. He's completely dispossessed. Esau might have had that birthright inheriting the worldly goods, uh, but it, they're back with Esau. Jacob doesn't seem to stand any chance of seeing them anytime soon. We'll learn later he'll never see his mother again, to whom he's so devoted. He's in exile. He's on a 500-plus mile journey to find an uncle he's never met. It's funny. When Isaac was chosen, Ishmael was sent away to the east. But now it's Jacob who's on the run. The Bible almost never gives us details of journeys. So, when we get to this next incident, we know something important to Jacob's story is taking place. I think this journey might be about changing Jacob, and that's why he has to go alone. So picking up in verse 10. Jacob left Beersheba and set out for Haran. And when he reached a certain place, he stopped for the night because the sun had set. Taking one of the stones there, he put it under his head and lay down to sleep. 
he had a dream in which he saw a stairway resting on the earth with its top reaching to heaven, and the angels of God were ascending and descending on it. There above it stood the Lord, and he said, I am the Lord, the God of your father Abraham and the God of Isaac. I will give you and your descendants the land on which you are lying. Your descendants will be like the dust of the earth, and you will spread out to the west and to the east, to the north and to the south. All peoples on earth will be blessed through you and your offspring. I am with you and will watch over you wherever you go, and I will bring you back to this land. I will not leave you until I have done what I promised you. All right, now this is odd in so many ways. First of all, what is Jacob doing here? Hospitality is highly valued in the Middle East. Then, as now, travelers are generally given a place to spend the night. The text doesn't tell us why Jacob is sleeping in the open, but it's an odd detail. Is it just that he's in such a God-forsaken place? Or is he such a wretch, completely lacking in connections, that nobody wants him? Or is he so depressed and alone he didn't even seek shelter? Who knows, but for whatever reason, this underscores just how alone he is at this point. Unprotected from all the dangers of the night, which are real. Wild animals, robbers, the elements. He is a virtual no-man in a virtual nowhere. When have you felt the most alone? Maybe in a time of being abandoned or rejected by somebody significant? Maybe just removed from your place and your people? You know, I felt that way when I moved to grad school and was 2,000 miles away from everybody that mattered to me, so uprooted. Maybe it's the deep loneliness of being in a relationship but not really understood. Or maybe most disturbingly, convinced that even God is through with you. You've caught yourself thinking, God has other concerns. He's kind of taking care of them. I can see that. But he's not with people like me. At this lowest of moments, Jacob has a dream. In the dark, in his sleep, God shows up. Now this in itself is amazing. God showing up to Jacob is grace, pure and simple. I love this. Jacob has done absolutely nothing at all to expect or deserve such an encounter. He's a traitor, just a jerk. So far he's shown no remorse for all of his actions. Never yet has he acknowledged God in any personal way. Remember he tells Isaac, the Lord, your God, gave me success. We've never heard yet Jacob say, God is my God. This is a God who will not leave him alone. And maybe it's important that he has to lay down and sleep and be the most vulnerable before he's open to this divine encounter. So now the story takes us inside Jacob's dream. And we'll see what he sees, which is this ladder set on the earth with its top reaching to heaven and the angels of God ascending and descending on it. Okay, you've seen pictures of this, I'm sure they're pretty fanciful, but what is this about? Well, scholars will say that a ladder is a bad translation and prefer a, a stairway or a ramp. It's something like probably a Mesopotamian ziggurat, if you could get the first image. Something like this. We have evidence of these in the area from which Abraham and his family came. It's the kind of temple they'd build and you'd go up, this, the, the representative of the people goes up the stair and you know, communes with the God at the top if, if the divinity will deign to do so. Now, where have we seen something like this? This is a test. Babel. Yay. Right. It's been a couple years. 
But in the Tower of Babel story, we see that the people say, let's build for ourselves a tower. And then the words are exactly the same. With its head, you know, with its top in the heavens. They want to build it for themselves. And to me, this, this ziggurat, this Babel tower, is emblematic of our striving to reach toward God and also to mark and possess the place where we think the divine can be encountered and to limit who can go there. So only the priest or the chosen representative who gets to go up. And this is especially true of Babylon, which means the gate of God, and they were pretty proud of their access to the divine. So in this story, the language is a little bit different. It's probably a stairway. Let me get the second one that Jacob sees. I like this view. It gives you an idea. Ooh, I think maybe what the author here had in mind. But unlike that, this tower is literally placed towards the earth. That is, the language suggests that this tower reaches from heaven down to earth. This one is put here on God's initiative. And somewhat similarly, we've got angels ascending and descending on the tower, which implies, in the order of that phrasing, that they're already busy on earth. Um, there's some precedent that angels in scripture represent the concerns of various nations and peoples. So maybe these angels are um, reporting to God on the goings-on down below and executing his will um, in all the different places of the earth. So there's that all peoples again. So the latter tells us that earth is God's business and we are not abandoned. It's truly a powerful visual image. This from Brueggemann. This means that earth is not left to its own resources and heaven is not a remote, self-contained realm for the gods. Heaven has to do with earth. And earth may finally count on the resource of heaven. Earth is a place of possibility because it has not been and will not be cut off from the sustaining role of God. So here in Genesis, this is the story about beginnings, we find that rescuing earth is what God has been up to all along. And in the fullness of God's revelation, we understand specifically that God has met us in the person of Jesus. Because as we heard, one mediator between God and human beings witnessed two at the proper time. Now this is not just a fanciful connection, nor is it just an attempt to bring every sermon back to Jesus. Jesus actually makes this claim for himself. If we go to the opening chapter of John's Gospel, which is all about who is Jesus, this word made flesh. At the very end of that chapter, he's calling disciples, and he's calling Nathanael, who is called, Jesus calls him, a true Israelite in whom there is no deceit, which makes him a nice counterpoint to our Jacob, the deceiver. Nathanael, amazed at Jesus' foreknowledge, hails him as the Son of God, the King of Israel. But Jesus says, you surprised? Well, you shall see greater things than these. Truly I say to you, you shall see the heavens opened and the angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man. What a weird thing to say, unless you're talking to somebody for whom this story is burned into his cultural imagination. So Jesus is saying, yes, those things you said about me are true. Yes, I'm the king, and yes, I'm the son of God. But let those just be empty titles to you. Let me tell you what that means. In a very visual picture, I am the connection between heaven and earth. So that's what Jacob sees and how it resonates down. Now, also with that, he hears. Together with this stunning vision comes the word of promise. Now the words are basically the blessing to Abraham, except now Jacob's getting it for himself from God. And it's all three parts. The land, which he is now leaving. 
the descendants, which he doesn't yet have a hope of, and that the blessing through him all nations will be blessed. This is worth mentioning. The blessing is never just for Israel's sake. This narrowing is always for the purpose of channeling the blessing with the intent that it break out and flood all over the earth. And just in case Isaac failed to mention that part, God makes it abundantly clear. And when Paul references this mediator between God and man in 1 Timothy, this is his motive. This, he says, is the reason why I am sent as an apostle to the Gentiles, which is to say, the nations, all those other people besides Israel. So when God blesses us, it's so we can be a blessing to the world. So that's the basic Abrahamic blessing, but there is more. God adds something very personal to Jacob. Behold, I am with you, and I will keep you wherever you go. And I will bring you back to this land, for I will not leave you until I have done what I promised you. Which, by the way, doesn't imply that God will leave him after he has done it. It just means he'll be with him all the way through. Jacob could be forgiven for being a little surprised by this, because the ordinary Near Eastern sort of divinity was very place-bound. Um, he might be in charge of a city or kind of a region around it. But if you went too far away from that, you pretty much went out of his protection and benevolence. In fact, the Romans once uh, decided they would win a battle by just trying to like build a little place for the other guy's god, or goddess in this case, in their city, and then calling her to come live with them. Right? So he wouldn't be with them anymore. It's, it's a very concrete way of thinking. So this is really surprising. To say, I will be with you wherever you go, is actually pretty new. It might seem a little old to us. It's an amazing proposition for Jacob, for Israel in exile. Telling and retelling this story would be a source of comfort and hope. So not Babylon, their place of captivity, the gate of the God, but Bethel. This surprising encounter on the way to exile is called the house of God. The God who reveals God's self there promises to be with them beyond the confines of any place of worship. It's also a message of amazing hope to us. God is with us. It's not just a Sunday school lesson. Or if it is, it's of the all-I-need-to-know-I-learned-in-kindergarten variety. Isn't that so true of many of them? The promises of land and descendants do seem to relate to historical circumstances. We're on solid biblical ground if we want to claim that promise, I am with you, as a promise for us personally. It's the language of the Psalms. The Lord is your keeper. The Lord will guard your going out and your coming in. Psalm 121. I will fear no evil, for you are with me. Psalm 23. It's the language in which God calls his prophets sends his people to Moses I will be with you and this is how you'll know to Jeremiah do not be afraid of them for I am with you to deliver you it's how God reassures Israel through those same prophets when you pass through the waters I shall be with you Isaiah it's how he saluted and called one particular young woman hail Mary the Lord is with you like I said, I'm getting eager for Advent, and this text isn't helping any, because the, the name we claim in Advent is Emmanuel, God with us. And even with my, mm, let's see, eight, nine weeks of Hebrew under my belt, I'm so privileged to be getting to study that this, this year at Regent, um, I am able to figure out that the Emmanuel, the with us God, and the exact words that God uses to Jacob in this passage with you, I, 
are the same. And finally, it's Jesus' promise to the church. Behold, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. So this is no cliche. This is powerfully good news. We are accustomed to hear in some quarters that our sin separates us from God. Have you heard that? You've probably seen the diagram. God over here, huge chasm, you're over here. I know it's meant to emphasize God's holiness, to teach us about the necessity of Jesus' death for us, but it's not actually the image the Bible uses itself. The image of the Bible is of a God who goes looking for Adam and Eve in the garden after they've taken the fruit. It's a God who interacts all the more urgently with Cain, the deeper down into sin he spirals. It's the God who would show up to a traitor alone in the night and give him a revelation that's pure grace. It's the God who wants God's self to be depicted as a seeking shepherd or a woman frantic for a lost coin. It's the God who won't leave us alone. And there are other images for sin. Sin is serious business. Sin warps us. Sin is a disease. Sin gets in the way of what God wants to do for us in the world, but it does not separate us from God. If sin did cut us off from God, we would be in deep, deep trouble. The God of the Bible is one who is pictured as urgently, passionately seeking to rescue a people who cannot rescue themselves. God won't leave us alone because God desires all people to be saved and come to a knowledge of the truth. What would it look like if you could grasp this? Really grasp it with all your heart. God with you. I think I'm just beginning to. I want my kids to get this down to their bones, that God is on their side. If they get nothing else, I want them to get this. <laughs> and since we as parents primarily represent God to them right now, even when I have to discipline them, I'm called to bless them and assure them that I'm on their side. I don't always do that very well, but that's the call. But let's be honest, we still feel alone sometimes. Our circumstances have not changed. We suffer and God does not seem to intervene. We are in exile. The storm hits. We walk through the valley of the shadow of death. God seems absent sometimes. For me, the only thing adequate to this predicament that we feel is knowing that the story that we tell is a story in which God in Jesus suffers with us. That's as close as it gets. He is the mediator who gives not just what we need, but himself so that we are surrounded by love. And when we can grasp that, fleeting as it might be, it changes everything, even in the circumstances. Paul got it. And he said, I am sure that neither death nor life, nor angels nor principalities, nor things present nor things to come, nor powers nor height nor depth nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God. So, our reaction and Jacob's reaction. We're given two things, his feelings and his actions. At verse 16. When Jacob awoke from his sleep, he thought, Surely the Lord is in this place, and I was not aware of it. 
He was afraid and said, how awesome is this place? This is none other than the house of God. This is the gate of heaven. Early the next morning, Jacob took the stone he had placed under his head and set it up as a pillar and poured oil on top of it. He called that place Bethel, though the city used to be called Luz. Then Jacob made a vow, saying, If God will be with me and will watch over me on this journey I am taking, and will give me food to eat and clothes to wear, so that I return safely to my father's household, then the Lord will be my God, and this stone that I have set up as a pillar will be God's house. And of all that you give me, I will give you a tenth. So his feeling, when told that God is with him, is one of awe and terror. God with us is not all sunshine and flowers. It's actually kind of a terrifying thought. In that presence we are exposed and called to be more than we have been. So Jacob experiences the holy terror of knowing that God has a transforming claim on his life. The God who will not leave us alone will not leave us alone. Jacob then acknowledges his total ignorance. God is here and I had no clue. This is the beginning of his transformation. He takes certain concrete actions in dawn's light. He marks the spot with a stone, he consecrates it, and he makes a vow. I find this a little odd. God has just promised Jacob, I'm with you wherever you go. So why all this concern about the place? Right? Bethel. There are some historical reasons, because this became an important place in Israelites, Israel's worship. But I think it's even more than that. Because we are human, we experience the urge to mark the places where God has appeared to us. We need help remembering. And actually, the spiritual life consists not just in our feelings or even in our beliefs, but in concrete practices that bind us to those commitments. Maybe we aren't so likely to erect a monument in stone. I don't think I'm going to put any in my yard anytime soon. But we do have ways to do this. One is when we've met God and grasped this truth that in Jesus, he is with us and we are going on a journey of transformation, we take the public and physical rite of baptism. and That's a way of marking. More privately, we might be creative. We might draw or write or paint that moment. We can celebrate the important anniversaries in our faith life, and maybe marking is just as simple as telling someone. Any of these are physical acts that are also profoundly spiritual because they serve to get our experience out of our head, make it real both to us and as a witness to others around us. And then finally, Jacob makes this vow. It's a little tempting to see a hint of cynicism here, right? Jacob the wheeler and dealer, because he says, if you'll do this, I'll do that. How should we understand this? I don't think it's an attempt to bribe God, and here's why. What he says is based on what God has already promised him. He's using a type of solemn, formal language, um, but his requests are actually quite modest. Give me food and clothes and get me back safe. This is not the heresy of trying to offer God a flawless faith in return for some sort of guarantee of prosperity. And there really is an if. Right now, he's given God probably all he had when he anointed the pillar with oil. He's traveling, after all. His promises to make this a sanctuary and bring a tenth of his wealth are, in fact, dependent on God fulfilling the promises that God has made. There's really nothing we can do for God to tip his hand. We, he already does it for us. 
So here Jacob, who has only ever grasped after what was not his, is now holding on to this word of promise, which has come to him as pure grace. And despite this incredible encounter, Jacob is not yet completely transformed. And I find this very helpful. It often happens that way with us. When we begin to journey with God, it is just that, a beginning. If anybody tells you the Christian life is get saved and then everything will be rosy after that, they're wrong. Perhaps Jacob's vow is just a little short of total abandonment of himself to God's purposes. As far as this story is going to let us know, God is not perturbed. God knows that Jacob has stepped out on this transforming pilgrimage. In fact, he's about to go into a very difficult situation. Looking ahead, we just will hint that he'll be shaped by suffering. The deceiver will be deceived. He, he'll again stand in fear of his life. He will meet God again, and in that encounter will be further changed. God will be with him. God, Emmanuel, is with us. God just won't leave us alone. And that changes everything.